Uh, just I want to just echo what, what Tyler said, and, and that is, you know, it, it is a cliche when we say, you know, our freedom wasn't free, but it's actually true. I mean, Jesus, Jesus purchased our, our, our spiritual redemption. You know, he, he came and he saved and he rescued lost and broken people. But we live in a country that gets to enjoy a lot of freedoms because a lot of people gave their lives for that. And so tomorrow, uh, when you're doing whatever, you do, maybe get a day off, you know, just... Remember that. Remember that that we live in a country whose people's personal sacrifices have paid for our freedom, and I think it's amazing. It really is. Uh, mom, we have a mom's coffee coming up. It's mom's, uh, you know, a kind of brunch and coffee. It's on uh, May 29th from 9 to 11 a.m. And when people hear that, they think, oh, that must be for stay-at-home moms. Well, no, it's for any mom. Like if if you are a kid, and you have, if you have a kid, and your kid's five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty-four, you know, you. Can, you can go. You, you can still because it's it's about connecting moms together, and and moms have a lot of things to learn from other moms of all stages of life. Uh, if you do have younger ones and you want to come to that, just sign up so they have enough childcare for it. But we would like to encourage all of your moms to, to come to come to that and and to check it out and kind of connect with other moms. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, well, I don't know because I'm not invited because I'm not a mom, but you know. I hear it's going to be a lot of fun. So, so come to that. Come to that. Uh, just sign up in the back, if, especially if you need childcare, and so they can have enough food and enough coffee to keep you all going the entire time. Uh, if you're newer to Element, I'd like to welcome you. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. There are half sheets. Uh, on those half sheets on the front, you'll have the verses we go through, a place to write some notes. On the back, there's a bunch of questions. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We will get started. This is Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who not only preach the truth, but live the truth that our actions would show what we truly believe and that you would be lifted up and glorified in all that your children do so the world would know who you are by the thoughts and acts and actions of your children. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week six of our Pharisee University. Uh, again, hence the decor. It's our frat house. Uh, this is where we teach you how to be a good Pharisee, the difference between a Pharisee and maybe someone who recognizes their own brokenness and can respond in kind. And I'm kind of thinking about these messages as, as we've gone through them, the ones we've done. I don't seem to be telling you enough how to become a good Pharisee. I kind of seem to be telling you how not to be one, which I guess is, is kind of the point anyway. But I hope we're heading somewhere close to the mark as we kind of go through these and we all kind of grow up a little bit. A lot of the ideas and illustrations we use for this came out of Larry Osborne's book called Accidental Pharisees because we all just kind of accidentally end up there. Today, really more than any other, I stick kind of close to the book. But I feel like I keep saying a lot of the same things to you. And, or maybe it's just me, I don't know. But, you know, today we're going to start talking about legalism or more the idea of, of making our personal convictions everybody else's convictions. Uh, Pharisees love to make an, a bunch of extra biblical rules, meaning non-biblical rules and standards, and they would judge everybody else by them. This is kind of like me when I judge you when you listen to country music, things like that, or, or, or boy bands, or cats, 
You know, those kind of things. Uh, Larry Osborne in his book likes to call it a litmus test. A litmus test is where you test something to determine whether it's good or bad by your you know, personal little thing that you've set up. In Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees had rules and standards to help distinguish them from anybody else so they would know who was in and who was out, who was godly, who was ungodly, who was committed, who was not committed. Again, it allowed them to know who was in and who was out. For a Pharisee, the worst thing that they could do is kind of be just part of the crowd, be part of the middle. They always wanted to be a little bit different than the commoners. Even the name they took for themselves, Pharisees, it means separated ones. They were different than everybody else. You know, for the Pharisees, what they wanted to remind everyone is that they were not just an ordinary Israelite. They were something different. Now, today, we do this uh, in various different ways. We may, may act different or talk different or may dress different. A lot of time when that happens, we say, well, I don't want people to single me out. Don't be looking at me. But we dress maybe like death threw up on us or something. And it's like, don't look at me. How ah, can I not? You know, it's because we all just want to stand out a little bit. We do the things that we do. We dress the way that we do because we think it makes us look good. And so we do these things that make us stand out. We all do it. But this also goes even farther into our spiritual realms and how we do things like that. Like a lot of us have a little litmus test that helps us to understand who's in and who's out in our own minds by how they measure up to what we think. Like like how we today, a lot of us think that God's favor rests on those who are the most dedicated. This is why when I go to any place and someone has to pray for a meal, they all look at me like, are you going to pray? I'm like, what? Like I got a closer pipeline to God? Yes, you do. Ah, that's not how it works. I'm probably worse off than all of you, but but okay. I mean, that's today nobody wants to be called a Pharisee. So what we do is we come up with new phrases to describe what we think is better than other people. And so we'll use words like radical and sold out, non-fire and missional and gospel-centered and revolutionary and organic. And not that the words are wrong. It's that when we start to use those words to separate ourselves from everybody else and keep other people outside and only bring in the ones that we like. Many Christians use these words not to describe their focus of ministry, but to, you know, steal a word from Mark Driscoll. It's, it's to say our tribe is more committed and more biblical and more pleasing to the Lord than all these deluded masses that fail to match up to who we are. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. As I talk about this, don't misunderstand me when I say these things. I believe that we all should be highly committed to Jesus. I think that should be a goal in all of our lives. Colossians 2 reminds us to be careful in how we go about that. Colossians 2, starting in verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is legalism. You know, I have had people, when they come to Element for the first time, they will ask me, oh, are you missional? Oh, are you gospel-centered? Are you spirit-led? Are you expositional? Are you externally focused? No one ever seems to ask me the one question I would ask if I went to a church and wanted to know, which is, what do you think about Jesus? That's my question. Who is Jesus? If you give me that answer, that, that, that's, that's what I want to know. I mean, is that too generic? I mean, people want to know if we pass their particular litmus test. Did you use the right words? And if I do, they stay and come back until I use the wrong word, because I eventually... Use the wrong word up here a lot, right? You know, sometimes that happens. And, and if I do use the wrong word, it's like, okay, we'll, we'll pray for you. 
And when they say we pray for you, that means we'll pray for you to be more like us. And then, and then they leave and, and never come back. Being a Pharisee is never a good thing because it is constantly having us always ask the wrong questions. It plays to our pride. It flows out of a heart of legalism. A couple of weeks ago, I kind of talked about fences and how sometimes we put fences in our lives where this is our fence and if you believe my things, you can come inside of my fence. But if not, my fence is here and you just kind of stay on the outside. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of these fences that we still have today. I'm pretty sure they're actually in the book as well. But the first one is this. We call it old school legalism Christians. Old school legalism Christians. This is where before we used to be more concerned about what's in your refrigerator than what's in your heart. Like beer or wine, you're going straight to hell if that's that's in your refrigerator. I remember a church I went to when I was 17 years old that said movie theaters, dancing, and poker was evil. I don't know if it was the cards or what it was, but poker was evil. There's also a dress code. If you were a girl, your, you know, your dresses had to be a certain length. If you were a dude, you, had, you couldn't have long hair. They had their own university. And if you went to the university, dudes couldn't have beards because beards were evil. And I guess Jesus got a pass on the beard and long hair rule, but you know, he's Jesus and you're not. You can walk on water, you can have a beard. Other than that, you can't have one. Now, today, a lot of Christians look back and make fun of those days. You know, why would anybody ever think an outdated dress code or a boring diet or short hair would make you a better Christian? But what happened is our legalism had just kind of morphed into something else. We call this new school legalism Christians. This is today where we no longer care really what's in your fridge. We judge you by your house size. If it's too small, you don't budget well enough. If it's too big, well, then you're not generous enough. We, do, we judge you by what's in your driveway. If it's too small, you're not manly enough. If it's too, if it's too nice, well, you're too greedy. I, and today, this is the crazy thing. You can actually gain some brownie points for having the right microbrew in your refrigerator. <laughs> Praise God, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, movies are no longer evil. Now we call movies a source of culturally relevant sermon illustrations. And dancing, dancing is no longer evil. I mean, you go to a Christian wedding today, a DJ is just as important as a photographer, or probably even like the minister. Like, you got a good DJ? Yes. How about a pastor? I don't know. We got a DJ. Okay. It's crazy. Legalism just kind of morphs into a new set of standards. Every time Christianity wants to have a higher commitment, and, and not that that's bad, we start to make a little litmus test to show what's important to us and what is non-negotiable. I'll give you some others. And it's not that these things are necessarily bad. It's just when it comes to legalistic behavior. When we take our convictions and we lay them on other people. So, next one's called social justice Christians. Social justice Christians, this is people who see generosity to their cause as the leading indicator of what it means to follow Jesus. But really, what does generosity look like? Especially generosity in a first world country like America. You know, what does, what does that look like? You know, if, if you don't live a simple lifestyle according to these people, if you don't live simply enough, you're, you're not generous enough, and you're on the outside. But really, the scriptures don't have a paradigm of what that's really going to look like. Uh, you have these ones I would like to call, I'm in love with Jesus Christians. Uh, the litmus test for them is costly personal sacrifices. Like if you have been persecuted for your faith, then you are in. That, that's your people. But if you haven't chosen the path of suffering, your commitment to Jesus is going to be questioned. Like if your ultimate goal is to live like a quiet and peaceful life, minding your own business, you've seriously missed the boat. Even though the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Hmm, right? 
How about this one? Missional Christians. They want to know what you're doing to help fulfill the mission of God. I love the word mission. I really, really do. You know, but, but they have this thing. If you don't move your family from the suburbs down into the inner city, well, you're just not part of them. You've got to do that to be in. If you attend a seeker church, you are out and you do not know Jesus. That's just... Okay, you don't even know what a secret church is. Good for you people. Okay, uh, the next one we'll call gospel-centered Christians. These are people who like to determine uh, their spiritual maturity by means of the theological grid. Like if you like big words, especially if you've read anything by a guy, by a guy named Jonathan Edwards lately, you're in. I mean, you, you, you're in. If you like a lot of Bible verses, if you do not like the word pragmatic, if you can tie everything to You don't know what pragmatic means. Okay, never mind. You know, if you can tie everything back to the gospel, which, which you should, which you should, you know, then, then you can't really mean it. Like, like if you're slow on the uptake, you're dyslexic, or you're action-oriented, you know, if you're better with your hands and your mind, if you have a hard time with big words and long paragraphs, you're going to tend, but you may not ever actually lead anything. And then you have what's called organic Christians. These, these are people who I like to say have been hurt or disillusioned by the failings of the, of the large church or the institutionalized version of the church in, in any form. If that's happened to you, you've been hurt, well, then you're in with these people. If you like to talk about how bad and how dumb the, the church is, those are your people. You know, to really be accepted, you've got to quit going to a church church and go to like a little house church. And if you do currently attend a church with like a building and a staff and a mortgage, you don't have to ditch it immediately, but you've got to start talking bad about it all the time. And, and, if, you, and if you're going to give any offerings, make sure you send them somewhere else so you don't feed that beast. That's, that's kind of the thing. Now, all of these expressions of the Christian faith are trying to emphasize something good. They're trying to emphasize something good. But as Larry Osborne says in the book, he says, they're all teetering on the edge of a dangerous cliff because the moment we allow our personal passion and calling to become the litmus test by which we decide who is in and who, who is and who isn't a genuine disciple, we've taken a step too far. Because at that point, you stop building the kingdom of God, and you start tearing it down, and we have become Pharisees. Now, a good question to ask yourself, and this is, what tribe are you, are you in? Who's your tribe? Element, we tend to be gospel-centered and missional. That, that's our tribe. We love those words. But there's other evangelical tribes that are out there. With the differences are open and are close-handed issues. Now, I'm going I'm to tell you what this means. Close-handed issues are things that we will fight and die over. Open-handed issues are all the things that we can argue about over here, and in the end, it doesn't matter to your salvation. For element, close-handed issues are the Bible is God's perfect and authoritative word. Close-handed issue. That God is a triune God, one God, three persons. Close-handed issue. Human sinfulness by nature and by choice. Close-handed issue. Jesus is fully God and fully man, lived without sin, died in our place, rose from the dead to raise us back to life, close-handed issue. Salvation is bestowed on people by a gift of the grace of God. Close-handed issue. New birth through Jesus is done by the Holy Spirit through faith in God. Close-handed issue. But beyond that, you have all these other open-handed issues. And this is where you get Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and Nazarene. They're differing on their open-handed issues, but they all really do hold these same close-handed issues. See, so if you're a Christian for any length of time, what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself being pulled into a camp somewhere. And you're going to want to set up that tribe, and that can begin to have pharisaical attitudes, especially when you fail to understand grace correctly. Because when you don't understand grace correctly, you start to compare yourselves to other people in legalistic ways. Like if you start to serve, and you're like serving all the time, or you're always helping out in children's, which you all should help out in children's. They really need the help. You're all here. You can come to like third service and help out, right? Good, okay, you know, go talk to Christy and tell her you're down. Like once a month, just 
Okay, so if you're like serving a lot, you'll start looking around seeing everybody else who doesn't like serve as much as you. You're like, why don't people serve like me? They need to serve more. Or if you start reading your Bible, like you're really taking heart, I'm going to start reading my Bible every single day. So you start reading your Bible, start looking around at other people. Why aren't they reading their Bible? What's wrong with those people? They need to read their Bible more. And we start to judge these things. Like, like for me, you know, I think the further you get away from country music, you know, the more you're going to judge those still up in the misery of the hell of country music. It's just what it is. Now, if you've been around Element for any length of time, you know that we love for people to step into positions of leadership. We want that to happen. But when you are in a position of leadership, you will notice how other people you think should rise to that level just won't do it. And you start to have all these little things you start to judge them. Like, they really need to be involved in spiritual disciplines. And, and we do. We should all have some spiritual disciplines in our lives. But for when you're around long enough, you start going, no, it's not just pray. It's you got to pray this way at this time. In this way, you got to get up at 5 a.m. and pray for an hour and read your Bible. If you got to go to the bathroom, just hold it because God's more important. All right? But what if you're somebody who, who likes to sleep in so when you wake up, you're actually rested when you pray? And you don't fall asleep when you're talking to him. And you actually read your Bible when you actually understand more because your brain's actually working. Some people are like, no, it's really important. You've got to write down everything that God tells you or that God does or where your heart's moving and journal it in something called a moleskin because it's really important. We, we start taking all these things and laying them on other people. I mean, most of us have fences that, that God has placed in our lives that we recognize that kind of go around so we don't mess up. But we start taking those fences and we place them on everybody else. Because we don't think God's fences are good enough and God's spirit can actually lead people where they need to go. Like, God has a fence that says, don't get drunk. And so we make a fence that says, don't drink at all. God has a fence that says, stay pure, don't fornicate. So people start to add a fence that says, well, don't dance. Because, you know, salsa may end up fornicating. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, God has a fence that says, God has a fence that says, don't, don't love money. Money's going to want to destroy your heart. So we added one on the outside of that, that that limits the size of the car or the house you can own or the, or the niceness of the car that you can drive. And there are probably literally hundreds of these things. And I believe in one sense, people who love Jesus, we all want to serve him faithfully. We all want to be the best Christian possible. But the extra rules we start placing on other people, they're not for God. They're for us. They're for us because we want everybody to be like us. We don't understand the unity that comes from centering on the person of Christ. And that begins to make us Pharisees when we start laying all of our rules on everybody else. So here's a question for you. What types of laws have you placed in your own life? What types of laws have you placed in your own life? Because in the end, it's really hard to be humble when you set your own standard and you can live up to it and nobody else can. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The problem with legalists is they never see themselves as legalists. What we see ourselves as is committed. I'm really committed. So how do you learn to recognize legalism in your life? One of the sure signs of it is you have a heightened sense and an emphasis on the implications of Scripture rather than the explicit commands of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18, I'm going to take one from what Paul says, and we're going to talk about this for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18, Paul says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now that's very straightforward. It's very straightforward. But when a legalist gets hold of this passage, they see it far more than just a command to keep your pants on. They see it as so much more, because that's too simplistic. They don't disagree with moral purity and keeping your pants on, unless you're married, then take them off all the time. We recommend it for all of you, okay? But, but you know, it, but, you know that, that, that's just not enough. 
Many legalists will read into this passage a biblical mandate for physical fitness, a prohibition against tattoos and piercings and any form of plastic surgery. They they take a a directive and add a million laws when God intended the original to be about freedom because sexual immorality will enslave you. Pornography will get its hooks so deep inside of you that it's almost impossible to get away. And so he says, flee from those things because God wants his people Free. That's the heart of the gospel. Freedom to worship Jesus without all of these things with their hooks in us so we can worship freely. Now, sometimes it's hard to argue with the legalist because some of the things they say make a whole lot of sense. From a legalist perspective, if your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's not a stretch to assume that God wants you to treat it with care. And you should treat it with care, okay? But a passage like this becomes an admonition. You've got to exercise regularly and eat right and get plenty of sleep. But then it goes even farther. And it starts to become an indictment against people who maybe are a little overweight. A legalist then begins to feel like it's okay to think of people as overweight as being spiritually undisciplined. Maybe even outside of God's will. Unless their last name happens to be like Moody or Spurgeon, who are both overweight, you know. You guys know who that is? Mike, I'm going to give you some church history at some point and talk about some of these people. Um, and so, you know, the same results in rules against like, you know, body art or piercings or things like that. They, they would say things like, well, if you wouldn't deface the temple in Jerusalem with, with graffiti, would you deface or remodel the temple of the Holy Spirit? Which my response is always, well, you know what? Sometimes it's nice to hang art on a bare wall. I'm just saying. I am pretty sure that Paul's directed to the Corinthians to stop visiting temple prostitutes and stay morally pure, which is what the verse is about in context, did not also include directive to get a good cardio workout, eat organic foods, go paleo and visit the dentist. I don't think it was. But that's how legalism works. It takes our desire to be very faithful to the scriptures, very faithful to them, and it turns it to additions to the scriptures. It focuses our attention on what we think the scriptures should mean rather than what it actually says, which always results in the loss of freedom, which results that we don't worship Jesus how he intended us to to worship him. Now, I believe you should work out. I believe we all should eat a little better. I think you should all go to the dentist so you don't look like a meth head, okay? But legalism leaves no room for freedom and grace. And the moment, the moment any of our personal applications about the implications of the scriptures because the, becomes the lens through which we judge people, something's gone wrong and we are living like Pharisees. See, the black and white commands of Scripture, they aren't open to interpretations. I mean, there are black and white things that are like, don't lie, don't steal, don't slander. You don't get to turn a deaf ear to the poor. You don't get to hoard the gospel. You don't get to worship idols. You don't get to murder that neighbor that drives you crazy every week. But you have so much freedom in so many other areas. And it's that freedom that drives the the fledging little legalists and all of us just a little bit crazy. Because once the Holy Spirit places a call on our life, a conviction to do something or not do something, it's, it's so hard for us to fathom that everybody else didn't get that exact same memo. And they did not live in the exact same way. At Element, we believe there is one true interpretation of a passage. Okay? That means, like, love your neighbor. What does that mean? Love your stinking neighbor. Okay? Where they stinks or not. But love your neighbor, right? But there are various applications of how that's lived out. And sometimes you can even have two opposing views of how that is lived out. Two exact opposite things of living it out. Like if you have a neighbor and maybe they're, they're just destitute and down on their luck and they've lost a job. Maybe you need to go over and actually help them out and maybe give them some money and some food. But maybe you have a neighbor who just takes and takes and takes and takes and is always looking. Maybe the best thing you can do is tough love. And you don't go and give them money. 
You go over there and you show them the love of Christ, but you don't get... And so sometimes the application of it can even be differing head-to-head on how it's actually lived out. We have, to be, we have to be careful on how we live out those applications, ugly implications of Scripture. Now, the early church fell into this trap, and their battles were about diet and worship. Diet and worship. Each side had its favorite text to prove this, okay? So diet, some people believed it was horrible to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, almost all the meat and all the markets were, came out of one of the pagan temples in one way or another. So you'd take an animal, they'd sacrifice it, and then they would send it over to the market. So it was like the Goodwill beef market, all right? So it's like reuse, recycle, they'd be totally in today. So you just kill it and then take it on there and you, then they, so, and so people had a, had a problem with that. And they would, the Christians didn't, they point to the Old Testament that for bids worshiping of idols and they said that anything offered to one of these demon gods was a direct partition direct participation in pagan sacrifice so you weren't allowed to eat that Uh, so again much of the meat sold in the marketplace passed those pagan temples they were convinced the only prudent thing you could do was to avoid eating meat altogether rather than chance it others said that those rules are stupid because those idols are only powerless man-made images there are no other gods than god alone they argued the command to avoid auto worship had nothing to do with eating a piece of meat that may or may not have been offered to a pagan idol by someone else. That is actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you know, about making your brother stumble. That's what it's all about. Today we've made it into things about like alcohol wars, but, but that right there is what it's actually all about. Uh, Sabbath, the Sabbath. What day are you supposed to worship? Saturday or Sunday? America can't decide. You get both. Praise God. It's wonderful. But the early church had this battle over this. You know, what day are you supposed to do that? Two sides disagreed. You know, one side wanted to make the Gentile Christians observe all the Jewish Sabbaths and and holy days. They would point to these passages in the Old Testament that commanded God's people to keep the Sabbath holy. A lot of Gentile Christians disagreed. They said, you know what? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament laws, including the Sabbath laws. They saw no reason why they had an obligation to obey the Jewish laws, especially these laws that were powerless to save. So what's the answer? You have these two sides that are worrying about this. So the Apostle Paul writes to settle this dispute. And he gives the answer that nobody saw coming. He told them that God was good with both their answers. That's what he tells them. He's fine with people who ate meat offered to idols. He was pleased with those who stuck to vegetables. That he was good with those who kept all the Jewish Sabbaths. He was pleased with those who treated every single day alike. Why? For Paul, it was a matter of freedom in Christ because the Bible doesn't have specific instructions about eating meat offered to idols. It doesn't address Gentile adherence to these Jewish Sabbaths. So they're free to figure it out on their own as led by the Holy Spirit and guided by their conscience. Again, led by the Spirit. Their lives have been surrendered to Jesus. So Jesus' Spirit is living in them. He is leading them and guiding them. We listen to what Jesus says, first and foremost, above all things. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. And I'll, and I'll read you how, what Paul says about this. Uh, I'll tell you, I think, what, what wasn't okay with God was their pharisaical attitude, how both sides showed disrespect to each other and how they went about this. So Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1, Paul essentially tells both sides they need to back off. Okay, Romans 14, verse 1, this is, what, this is what Paul writes. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. 
The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, or at least we shouldn't, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Amazing, amazing words from the Apostle Paul. See, you can't miss the distinction between judging people and showing contempt. It's really important. It still happens today. I mean, if you are someone who has a bent toward a rigid, rule-based expression of faith, that isn't necessarily bad, but it's when you start to condemn and judge other people who don't follow your rules or commands that it turns bad. There are some people who consider all those rules and standards unnecessary, and they tend to look with disgust and contempt on those who insist on keeping them. According to Paul's exhortation, we have no right to judge people whom God accepts. We have no right to look with contempt upon people that God loves. Only Pharisees do that. Uh, let me explain this from, from a personal standpoint of kind of something that happened to me. Um, the week I wrote this message, I had a conversation w- with a young guy. He had just gotten out of rehab. He was attending one of the gospel communities. They are having a dinner that night. And at that dinner, they decided to serve some margaritas. So he told some of the leaders that, I don't agree with this. I don't like this. He actually came and talked to me about it. And so he laid out some arguments from Scripture in his heart. I listened. I agreed with him on certain things. I disagreed on other things. And then I explained to him open-handed and closed-handed issues, like the ones we talked about at the beginning of the message. And, you know, the open-handed issues at Element are, are a lot. Like, um, at Element, your leadership is reformed in their theology. But you can participate and even be a leader at Element and not be reformed. Uh, your elders at Element, we like good beer, Okay? Good beer, okay? You can hate alcohol. God forbid you can even like light beer, okay? (laughs) And you can still be involved here, okay? Uh, We believe God's gifts of the Spirit are still viable today, but widely misused in church context. You can be a cessationist, believing all the gifts have stopped, or a continuationist, believing all the gifts are still viable, and still be intimately involved at Element. And so I told him this, and I said these things as well as alcohol are open-handed issues, and we're going to spend eternity together. And I highly doubt when seeing Jesus face-to-face, all of our arguments are going to seem so important because we're going to be focused on who he is like we should actually be now. Plus, I said, you know, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus is going to have choice wine and choice food. So, ah, there you go. What are you going to do, you know? (laughs) I want to tell him that as long as our, our focus is Jesus and not all these arguments, we're going to maintain unity within the body of Christ. And that's what's important even when we disagree. Larry Osborne wrote this in the book. He said, the darkest and most dangerous side of legalism is what it does to mercy. It does. It destroys mercy for one another. I mean, legalists will say that we love the idea of mercy, but we always want to limit it when it's offered and who it's offered to. I think if you took like the hindsight of 2020, you know, looking at the scriptures, I wonder whose side many of us would have actually been on in all of these things. Because I'm pretty sure a lot of us would be Pharisees. I'm pretty sure I would be, you know, in some things. Because the Pharisees, they're not looking for loopholes. They're not looking for easy way outs. They're, they're striving to live to the highest standard possible. Their rules were always based upon rigorous study of the scriptures. No one would accuse the Pharisees of taking the scriptures lightly. But in the end, they had no mercy. They had no mercy. They didn't understand that Jesus said the scriptures are summed up in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophets. This is mercy for everyone, even people who don't deserve it. Because you know what? None of us deserve it. And yet Jesus gives it to us anyway. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus has sought us. Jesus has made room for you and I. I mean, the idea of a pure church only finds its purity in the person of Jesus Christ. 
That is the only place it finds it. It's not in ourselves. And I'm really happy that Jesus is the one who taught that. Now, I think personal convictions are good. We must live the personal convictions that God lays in our hearts. We must listen to God's spirit. We must also understand the difference between open and close-handed issues. Personal convictions and things that are in the scriptures that, boom, this is what you like. Keep your pants on. That's one, unless you're married again. Then take them off. But you know, keep your pants on. You know, We've we got to understand the difference between open and close-handed issues. And we must understand mercy and grace. Because if we don't, we're only going to be lost in broken Pharisees. And I know this is Pharisee University. Tony had to be a good Pharisee. But really, in the end, we don't want you to be Pharisees. We want you to live in the truth and the grace of Jesus, extending his grace to everybody. I mean, you, you may have some great personal convictions. And you know what? It's great to talk to other people about those, because maybe sometimes people haven't even thought about those. And maybe by talking to you, the Holy Spirit may begin to convict them. Or maybe you have something that you kind of grew up with that kind of hangs over your shoulders. You think, well, this, this has to be it. But then you talk to somebody else who maybe it's not a conviction for them, and it helps you to see the freedom and the grace that God provides. This is one of the reasons why it's not a bad thing to talk about these with other people. It's not like, you, oh, you know, have your own convictions and shut up. That, that's not what it means. It means we sharpen one another as we begin to understand what are open and closed-handed issues. And we talk to one another and we, and we help encourage one another to live the life that Jesus called us to. I mean, it is, it is a beauty of the mercy of Jesus that he gives us great freedom in our lives. It really is. This is one of the reasons we come to communion every week. But you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. So at this place is where we remember we lay down all of these things at his feet and we begin to refocus on Christ again. Communion should be a place where we set everything aside and focus on who he is. So as we get up and we actually leave this place and love on other people and, and look out to what God is calling us to do in the rest of the world, we are centered on Christ first. The band's going to come up. As they do, we might take communion, be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you. Uh, they would love to talk to you. Maybe in your life you still have a hard time you know, distinguishing between you know, what are open and closed-handed issues or what personal convictions for you you've laid on other people or what other people's personal convictions they've actually laid upon you. And you kind of work, they'd love to pray with you about that stuff. Actually, if you have any need whatsoever, they would love to pray with you. Uh, there's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of that worship. You have the opportunity every week, uh, but it's something you actually got to get up and do, just like you have to get up and take communion. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, meet some other people, because only by living in community with other people are you ever going to be able to start sharpening one another, to start talking about those personal convictions in your life, to be able to get a grasp on close-handed issues. You know, and those open-handed issues. Working and doing through those things in community with one another of a people who love and worship Jesus first above all things. Guys, Jesus called our focus on him to be the thing that unifies us. And we will only ever be unified when he is central to all of our lives. And so as we go through this Pharisee University, remember, it is Jesus who is central to all things. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people to understand the difference in our open and close-handed issues. To thank you for the deep and great truths that you have given us that, that do not change. Of who you are. Of the things that you have done to redeem and call us home. And I also think that in the midst of that, your spirit leads and guides us. 
into great areas of freedom. So we worship you, that you made us uniquely as we are. You have called us to live in community with one another. But still, the focus of our lives is always meant to be you above all things. We don't worship our our personal convictions. We worship you. And worshiping and lifting you up in our lives, having you as center to our lives. We will understand what you are calling us to. You yourself as the uncreated one who has made everything else. Teach us to be a people solely focused on you first above all things. And that in our lives, we remember and live in your holiness, your grace, and your calling. Teach us to live as you call us to live. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.